0: The decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. The title of this morning's message, The Most High. Father, we thank you that you are just that. You are the greatest, you are the highest, you are sovereign over all things. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today, that you would enlarge in our understanding of you, our appreciation of who you are, that we would see you sitting on your throne today, ruling over the kingdoms of men, for that you are. We love you and ask you to bless this morning, speak to our hearts in Jesus' name, amen. On December the 13th, 2003, American G.I.s conducted an operation near the town of Tikrit, Iraq. They opened up a spider hole, a narrow pit about six feet deep. And at the bottom of that hole, they found the world's most wanted villain, Saddam Hussein, ex-president of Iraq. Well, the manhunt was over. A year earlier, Saddam had been living in Baghdad in palaces surrounded by opulence and by creature comforts. How ironic to now find him living like a rodent, hidden in a burrowed cave. It took three years to try Saddam and convict him. He was found guilty of crimes against humanity, and he was sentenced to be hung. They say his last meal was chicken, rice, and hot water with a touch of honey. He was taken to the gallows and he was executed. The mighty had fallen. In his heyday, Saddam Hussein had stylized himself after the character of today's lesson, King Nebuchadnezzar. He held himself, the new Nebuchadnezzar. He said it was his destiny to restore the glory of ancient Babylon. And he was well underway when coalition forces took him down. He had rebuilt the palace, the Marduk Gate, several temples, the ancient the amphitheater. In fact, the symbolic end of Saddam's kingdom came when soldiers pulled over his statue in the very heart of Baghdad. In the ensuing days, the ruler who'd lived in palaces would hide in a spider hole. The scene hearkened back 2,500 years ago to events recorded here in Daniel. You see, the first Nebuchadnezzar ruled Babylon from 605 to 562 B.C., nearly four decades. At the famous Battle of Carchemish, his armies conquered the Assyrians and they drove Egypt back beyond the Nile. The world was now his. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Babel, the birthplace of idolatry, it reached its zenith. The city was surrounded by double walls, 90 foot high and 22 foot thick. You could turn a four-horse chariot on top of the walls of Babylon. The Euphrates River flowed under its fortifications, supplying the city its water and allowing it to grow its own own food. Babylon was viewed as impregnable. Nebuchadnezzar adorned the city with beautiful temples and boasted of a 700-room palace. In fact, he built the hanging gardens as a gift to his wife. They were referred to by the Greek historian Herodotus as one of the seven wonders of the world. In Daniel chapter 2, this Nebuchadnezzar, he has a dream, and he needs some help in interpreting it, but he's been suspicious of his so-called magicians and soothsayers in his court. They're on the payroll, no doubt, but he wonders if they're just making stuff up. The time has come to test their legitimacy. If their divine connections are real, they'll be able to recount his dream as well as give the interpretation, of course, This exposes the king's wise men as not so wise after all. Nebuchadnezzar is about to clean house when Daniel hears of what's happened. He goes home. He prays with his friends for God to give him the dream and the interpretation. And the Lord reveals to him just that. I love how Daniel thanks God for his intervention. In chapter 2 verse 20 he cries out, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever." For wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. Notice, my friends, he removes kings and raises up kings. He reveals deep and secret things. Notice Daniel's observation. He removes kings and raises up kings. Daniel is a faithful Jew. He's living in the Mecca of idolatry. He is a teenager barely old enough to shave. Jerusalem had been invaded and Daniel had forcibly been uprooted from family and friends and all that was familiar. And he had been taken as a POW halfway around the world to a pagan place. If there was any resentment in his heart, and I'm sure that there was, he had to get over it quickly. Because now he is expected to serve Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon in his royal court. Back home... Daniel had been part of a godly community. But now, he is a believing minority. In a land hostile to his faith, he is the one person standing up to this tide of heathenism and paganism. In Babylon, his God, the true God, is considered just one of many gods. Daniel walks amidst temples dedicated to various idols who've all been given credit to Babylon's many victories. And yet, Daniel knows the truth. He has never stopped believing that his God is he who removes kings and raises up kings. Daniel knew other scriptures that affirm God's sovereignty over kings and idols and nations. Like Psalm 22 verse 28, For the kingdom is the Lord and he rules over the nations. Or like Psalm 115 verse 3, Our God is in the heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Or Psalm 47 verse 8. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. Daniel lived through defeat and exile and dispersion. He actually lived at one of the lowest ebbs in the history of God's people. Yet he never lost sight of God's sovereignty over all things. Over all nations and kings that his God was the most high. Even though the people of Israel had been marginalized, the God of Israel could never be. In fact, Daniel knew that it was God who had raised up Nebuchadnezzar to bring judgment against his own land of Judah. He had read Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5 and 6, Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, another name for the Babylonians, a bitter and hasty nation. Daniel knew that even though he occupied minority status, and though his faith was not in fashion with the surrounding culture, his God was still on the throne. His God, the God of the Bible, still called the shots. Now in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the king saw an image of a man. His head was gold. His chest and arms were silver. His torso was bronze. His legs were iron. His feet were a mixture of iron and clay. A supernatural stone struck the image at its feet. The whole statue crumbled into pieces. The metals from the image were scattered while the stone grew into a large mountain that filled the earth. Daniel begins his interpretation in chapter 2, verse 37. He says, You, O king, are a king of kings. He's talking to Nebuchadnezzar. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. You are this head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar ruled what was history's most golden and glorious empire. But Daniel was faithful to remind him that it had been given to him and was on loan to him by the God of heaven. And he would not rule forever. Inferior kingdoms would follow. The silver of the Medo-Persians, the bronze Greeks, the iron Romans, even the iron and clay mixture. A last days empire yet to be seen. As it turns out, the image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream represented the span of human government. And it ends when Messiah... That supernatural stone strikes a death blow and causes the image to crumble. Messiah's reign is mountain-like and encompasses the whole earth. And in just this manner, the kingdoms of mankind will one day become the kingdom of God and Christ. Over the centuries, Bible students have studied the details of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and have marveled at its historical accuracy. But make no mistake about its original purpose. This was a shot across Babylon's bow. It was a warning to Nebuchadnezzar and his successors not to take their power for granted. God in heaven is the ultimate ruler. At times, he may choose to remain behind the scenes, but you can bet God moves all the scenes that he is behind. And Nebuchadnezzar got the point. At least sort of. Daniel 2 verse 46 tells us, He fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets. He then promoted Daniel over all his wise men. But you see this Nebuchadnezzar, he was a slow learner. That he was the head of gold in the dream, spoke of his glory. But it could have just as easily spoken of his hard head. For in chapter 3, he makes a gold image of himself. And he requires all the men to worship him. His image was in direct defiance with God's revelation. And when Daniel's three friends, we talked about it last week, refused to bow to the image, he tosses them into the furnace. But there, once again, Nebuchadnezzar encounters the living God. For God's Son appears in the fire to rescue the Hebrews who had defied the king's authority and had stood up for God. And this time in response, Nebuchadnezzar, he makes it a crime to speak a negative word against Daniel's God. His decree is a step in the right direction, but the king still hasn't humbled himself under the Most High God. Which brings us to chapter 4. One of the most remarkable chapters in all of your Bible, and I'll tell you why. Because before chapter 4 of Daniel was a chapter in the Bible, it was an edict issued from a pagan king that was read over all the land of Babylon. Daniel 4 was written not by a Hebrew judge or a prophet or a disciple, but by a pagan king in an idolatrous land, Nebuchadnezzar himself. Chapter 4 is the witness of Sodom Hussein Sr., Verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. He's issuing a multicultural, multinational message. The emperor writes, I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. King Nebuchadnezzar wants the world to know that among all its idols and kings, there is a most high God. Nebuchadnezzar's trouble started at a time when he was flourishing in his palace. Then, verse 5 I saw a dream which made me afraid. This guy's always dreaming. And the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Nebuchadnezzar, he goes on to tell us that he saw a tall, strong tree. It was leafy and fruity. It was prosperous. The beasts and the birds, they came from all over to settle under its shade and to live off its fruit. In verse 14, though, we're told a watcher, which was another name for an angel, cried aloud. You know, it's interesting that the angels are watching. They're the watchers. Apparently, they're observing us. The Bible says that our failures and successes are lessons to the angels. And it was one of these watchers who cried out, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump. Let it be wet with the dew, and let him graze with the beasts. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast, and let seven times or seven years pass over him. And then our text this morning, verse 17. This decision is by the decree of the watchers, and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. You see, when Daniel heard this, he instantly knew the meaning of this dream. And it upset him. He cared about Nebuchadnezzar. He cared about his subjects. The man was his boss, in fact. He had an empire to run. Daniel shuddered at the implications of this vision. God was going to humble Nebuchadnezzar. The head of gold in the dream will turn ill in the head. He'll be humbled by a mental illness that will cause him to act like a beast. Nebuchadnezzar had stood tall and proud. Now he's going to be made a stump. He'll crawl aimlessly on all fours. Earlier, Daniel, remember, was tempted to eat the king's finest delicacies. Now, for seven years, the king's diet will be weeds and grass. Not the good kind of vegetarianism. In chapter 4, verse 27, Daniel lovingly, yet boldly, he pleads with Nebuchadnezzar. He says, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Verse 27, Break off your sins. By being righteous in your iniquities. By showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be lengthening of your prosperity. Oh, he wants the king to repent. He says, please break off your sins. Maybe there's time for God to relent and change his verdict. Notice what Daniel didn't say. He didn't say, oh king, you can have the best life now. Or, oh king... You can eat the cookie and buy the shoes. He didn't soften up God's standards at all. He didn't water down God's demands. Daniel knew that God was angry with Nebuchadnezzar just as he is with everyone who goes through life turning a deaf ear to his will. The king needs to break off his sins, stop his rebellious ways, and learn to show mercy. And this is God's word to all people, regardless of their orientations or their choices. Break off your sin. Put a fork in it, man. Slam on the brakes, force an abrupt stop, and turn around your wicked ways and follow the Lord. That's His word to you today. Sadly, though, the king didn't accept Daniel's advice. For about a year later, as he was strolling along the palace one day, boasting of the greatness of his achievements, he just happened to blurt out, he said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built? And verse 31 tells us, While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. I mean, like a heavy coconut falling out of a palm tree. Boom! Boom! King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men. Be with the beasts of the field, eat grass like oxen. And notice, in that very hour, the word was fulfilled. Verse 33, his body was wet with dew. His hair had grown like eagle's feathers. His nails like bird's claws. Imagine President Obama disappearing for seven months. No speeches, no public appearances, no official photo ops, nothing but silence from Camp David. Except at night, a few daring reporters have seen a shadowy figure running around on all fours chewing grass. I mean, Washington's inner circle would be shrouded in secrecy. Imagine if that happened. The White House press corps would have been in an uproar. And yet Nebuchadnezzar's insanity didn't last seven months, but seven long years. It's interesting that there are recognized psychological conditions that fit Nebuchadnezzar's symptoms. Boanthropy is the technical name when a person thinks he's an ox. Psyanthropy is when a person thinks he's a dog. Lycanthropy is when he thinks he's a wolf. These psychological conditions actually occur. My 20-month-old grandson, Quincy, he has elephant throbby. He sticks his arm out in front of his nose and waves his trunk like this, and he goes, "Whoa! Whoa!" And he loves making elephant noises. But how do you envision How do you envision a fall this severe? Well, to me, again, the best example is Saddam Hussein. At the pinnacle of the man's power, Saddam was called the Lion of Babylon, the Anointed One, the Glorious Leader, the Successor of Nebuchadnezzar, the modern Saladin. But they fished him out of a hole in the ground like a gopher. They inspected his hair for lice and they swabbed his mouth for DNA. How's that for a fall? From glory to grovel. And this is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. It's no surprise that the Babylonian historians make no mention of the humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar. There was no such thing as a free press in the ancient world. Journalists who wrote negative stories about the king usually had their fingers or their hands amputated or worse. There was though a Greek historian... Abedinus, who wrote of Nebuchadnezzar some years later, 268 B.C., he said that the king had been possessed by some god and had immediately disappeared. That fits our biblical text. There is a Jewish tradition that tells us that it was Daniel who cared for the king while he was, quote, out to pasture. Daniel must have used his political clout to ensure the king's return. In chapter 4, verse 34, the king finishes his testimony. He said, At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand, not even a Babylonian king. And you've got to love the chapter's last line. It was penned by the most powerful man on the planet in his day, or perhaps the most powerful man since. He wrote, Those who walk in pride he is able to put down. Can I read that again? Those who walk in pride He is able to put down. Donald Gray Barnhouse used to say, Christ sends none away empty, but those who are full of themselves. God emptied Nebuchadnezzar of himself. What a beautiful witness of brokenness and humility. Nebuchadnezzar reminds me of Psalm 51 verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit A broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. See, I believe one day we'll see Nebuchadnezzar. We'll meet him in heaven. He surrendered his will to God. He learned that every king has a king. Every man has a God. The name he coins for God in verse 34 reveals it all. He calls our God the Most High. As we mentioned the last two weeks, Daniel was part of a believing minority. He was exclusively devoted to God in a multicultural, pluralistic society. The Babylonians were exclusively devoted to no one. They believed in every God and therefore no God. They used religion to control the masses and to further their politics, but convictions weren't part of their makeup. Daniel and his friends, though, were different. They were men of faith, even in the midst of secular surroundings. I like this observation by author Eugene Peterson. He writes this, 1,800 years or so of Hebrew history, capped by a full exposition in Jesus Christ, tell us that God's revelation of himself is rejected far more often than it's accepted. It's dismissed by far more people than embrace it. And it's been either attacked or ignored by every major culture or civilization in which it has given its witness. Magnificent Egypt, fierce Assyria, beautiful Babylon, artistic Greece, political Rome, Enlightenment France, Nazi Germany, Renaissance Italy, Marxist Russia, Maoist China, and pursuit of happiness America. The community of God's people has survived in all of these cultures and civilizations, but always as a minority, always marginal to the mainstream, never statistically significant. You see, what's happening in America today is nothing that hasn't occurred in other cultures at other times. It wasn't just Daniel in Babylon, nor is it just you in your office. More often than not, real Christians constitute a minority. A culture that supports Christian faith and values is the exception rather than the rule. And the stories we've read this morning, they reveal three truths that are vital for believers in the minority to remember. The first is this. Even though the numbers and mood of the culture may be against us, our God is still in charge. You need to write that principle down. Our God is still in charge. Several years ago, British researchers, they went door to door asking fellow Brits about their belief in God. And here's one of the questions they were asked. Do you believe in a God who intervenes in human history? Who changes the course of affairs? Who performs miracles, etc.? One man's response stood out. He answered, no, I don't believe in that God. I believe in the ordinary God. Well, if the ordinary God is impotent and apathetic and uninvolved, then He isn't the one true God. The real God is extraordinary. And we can't forget that truth even when everyone around us is against Him. God is in charge. He is the one who determines the course of events. He is ultimately the final authority. Hey, let me add to the scriptures that I read you earlier that speak of God's sovereignty over the nations. I like this one. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Wow. Rulers are often proud and hard and stubborn, but God has his means. He knows how to turn the king's heart God knows how to turn hearts. You know, the personal crisis of public figures is often hidden. We don't see what the president endures with his own kids. Or the heartbreak the movie star feels. Man, the guy hits a lot of homers. Who knew he had marital problems? But God knew. Psalm 103 verse 14 tells us, God knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. We're all human. Hey, even Barack and Michelle nip at each other from time to time. We all have our troubles. No one is exempt. Benjamin Franklin once said, The greatest monarch on the proudest throne is obliged to sit on his own rear end. (laughs) And the sovereign God can get even the most prominent person's attention. Even a Nebuchadnezzar. He can wake up a king to his spiritual hunger. Or he can cause your boss to recognize his need for God. Or he can spin that prodigal around on his heels and bring him back home. God has his means. God orchestrates every circumstance. Well, the second truth we glean from these chapters in Daniel is that even though we're in a minority, God's providence positions us to make a strategic difference. Our lives are like chess pieces on a giant board. We just don't always realize it's the Father's fingers around our lives and He is the one who's making strategic moves. I mean, I'm sure there were days Daniel moaned, Lord, why am I here? My heart is in Jerusalem, not in this pagan place. Yet God had purposes for him in Babylon. Just as he has reasons for positioning you where he has. Daniel's convictions and his godly character allowed God to promote him to influential and important posts. Daniel was just one man, but oh the difference he made. In Jerusalem he would have been helpful, but in Babylon God used him to steer worldwide events. If you don't think there's power in the minority, even in just one, let a single mosquito into your tent and spend the night with you. You'll discover the power of one. When Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus to a white person, this one lady became a civil rights symbol that exposed the evils of segregation. She was one person, but she made a big difference. It's often not how many, but it's who we are. And it's where we're placed that truly matters. As a true believer, you may be in the minority at work or even in your own family, but that doesn't mean God won't use you in a major way. And then the third lesson here in these stories is that God often uses the minority to speak prophetically and to sound a warning to the people who live around them. This is what we see happen over and over again with Daniel. He's Johnny on the spot with his interpretations. He becomes God's spokesperson to emperors. Surely Daniel, he wasn't the most popular person in times of prosperity. I mean, it was good that he never had to run for office. He could have never garnered a majority of votes. I mean, Daniel spoke the truth, not what tickled people's ears. And yet in the crisis, the king knew whose number to call. I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar had Daniel on his iPhone. And this is true of believers, even when they're in the minority. If we had to court the favor of the majority, we'd consult opinion polls. And we would tailor our message accordingly. But when you're in the minority from the start, you have nothing to lose in telling the truth. Daniel wasn't trying to make points with the king or climb a political ladder or launch his own campaign. He was a Hebrew, biding time in a strange land. And guys, that's our status. This world is not our home. We're, we long for a heavenly city. And this life will always be somewhat of a misfit. Our job is to point others to God. When people hurt and they look for answers... Our job is to speak prophetically into their lives. To speak for God with God's leading. Hey, think back on your life for a moment. Some of the best advice you've ever received wasn't so much what was said as when it was said. You probably heard it before. But suddenly your heart was soft. And the pump was primed. It was just the right word at the right time. Perhaps you just lost your job, or your child was in trouble, or your marriage was on the rocks, or you faced a serious illness. God used a friend to speak a timely word to you. When our friends go through similar circumstances, we need to be prepared to speak into their lives. The Christian minority should realize that God has us in the culture for this purpose, to speak to those around us when life causes them to become receptive to the truth. Well, I want to look at one more story in Daniel chapter 5, just as kind of a way of hammering home these truths that I've staked out. Here are these three principles in action. God is in charge. He positions us, and He uses us to speak. Chapter 5 puts these truths on display in a major way. Chapter 5, verse 1. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine. One Sunday, a pastor was attending a Bible study conference and was absent at church. His secretary decided to put a notice in the bulletin to explain his absence. Well, she meant to type the words, Our pastor is away at a study conference. But she mistakenly left off the why. Instead it read, our pastor is away at a stud conference. And worse was the remainder of the bulletin notice. It went on to read, please keep him in your prayers. Well here in Daniel chapter 5, the last Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar he does host a stud party. It's a drunken orgy. It's girls gone wild. It's a playboy banquet of wine and women. And just as the party gets out of hand, it gets interrupted by the hand of God. God crashes this party. Secular history lists the last king of Babylon as a man named Nabonidus. But there's evidence that he and his son, Belshazzar, ruled together for a season. During this rule, Babylon was in trouble. War was raging with two hostile allies, the Medes and the Persians. History tells us that at this time the city was under siege. And it's possible that Nabonidus and a portion of his army had gone out to battle to try to divert the enemy from the city. And Nabonidus, he leaves the city of Babylon in the hands of his arrogant son, Belshazzar. What a crucial mistake. Here's a kid who had a silver spoon in his mouth. He never had to fight or work or sacrifice. Everything had been given to him on a silver platter. He was now naive enough to think that Babylon the Great was unconquerable. Belshazzar was the guy who believed his own press clippings. Even when his kingdom is in dire straits, he throws a raucous party. It's like President Obama being criticized for taking vacation and playing golf while the nation's problems brew. You've heard that. Well, that was the knock on Belshazzar. No jobs. The market crashes. The country's on the verge of war. And instead of minding the store, Belshazzar, he parties hardy. And yet, isn't this what a lot of people do today? Their life is riddled with problems. Problems. There's guilt and there's friction and there's emptiness and there's anger. And yet rather than face their enemies, what do they do? They drown their sorrow or they try to numb their pain with alcohol or drugs or porn or a host of other amusements. Belshazzar, he doesn't want to face reality. Enemy troops are outside the gates and he hides in a glass. Hey, this is what your boss or your co-worker or your family member does. does. They dig a hole deeper and deeper to bury their problems, like Saddam trying to hide in the hole. They live in denial, dodging consequences, not wanting to admit that a day of reckoning is inevitable. In fact, King Belshazzar, he makes another move to foster this illusion that he has everything in control, that they have nothing to worry about. Verse 3, they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. These were the temple treasures Nebuchadnezzar took from Jerusalem along with Daniel some 70 years earlier. The young king is thumbing his nose in God's face. He's claiming to be greater than the God of Israel. Belshazzar is like many folks today, partying on the outside while fighting God on the inside. Hey, God is the real issue, even when people don't want Him to be. Verse 5 tells us, in that same hour, or literally in response to their mockery of God, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Today, archaeologists working in ancient Babylon have unearthed a banquet hall, 56 feet by 170 feet, that they believe was the actual site of the king's party. And since there are no crayon markings on the wall to indicate the royal toddlers were at work, apparently the writing on the wall came from the hand of God. Imagine, floating fingers, writing a message, Pretty eerie. It shook up the king. We're told, then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. In other words, it scared the stuffing out of him. How would you like it if suddenly a hand appeared and started writing on the wall? In fact, this phrase, his hips were loosened, speaks of his bowels. The king's problem here isn't too many party prunes. I mean, he's having a case of divinely inspired diarrhea. A little writing on the wall apparently is a good laxative. Immediately, the king, he shouts for his wise man to come and to read this message for him. And when all the astrologers fail, the king begins to sulk. He has no idea where else to turn. That's when the queen mother... Perhaps the widow of Nebuchadnezzar, Amidas is her name. She enters the banquet hall and she recalls Daniel, verse 11. She says, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And so Daniel gets brought in. He comes into this party and immediately Belshazzar promises him a purple robe, a gold chain, a big promotion as rewards for revealing the mystery. And I love Daniel's reply. He's an old man by now. He's in his 80s. And he could care less about the king's wealth. In fact, the promise of promotion in Belshazzar's government was like being awarded command of the Titanic just before it sunk. Daniel wasn't impressed. Daniel snarls at Belshazzar in verse 17. He says, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another, yet I will read the writing to the king. I'm not going to be bought. He'll read the writing only because he speaks for God. But first Daniel recalls God's humbling of the greatest of the Babylonian kings. His friend Nebuchadnezzar. And he rebukes Belshazzar for having learned nothing from his predecessor. Nebuchadnezzar bowed before God. Instead this little punk, he blasphemes and he mocks the living Lord. In verse 23, Daniel pulls no punches. He minces no words. He rebukes the king for his blasphemies. He says, And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your lord, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in His hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Verse twenty-five records the words the fingers of God wrote on the wall: "Meany, meany, tekel, you farson." These were Aramaic terms familiar to at least some of the wise men of Babylon. They probably knew their meaning. They were just too afraid to confront the king. Mini means numbered. Tekel means weighed. Upharsin means divided. Verses 26 through 29 gives the meaning of God's writing. Belshazzar's number is up. He's been weighed and God considers him a lightweight. And as a result, his kingdom will be divvied up between Media and Persia. History tells us that that very night, October the 12th, 539 B.C., while Belshazzar was partying inside the city, the Persian general, Ugabaru was his name, was actually launching his attack. Ugabaru knew that you couldn't go over these walls. They were 90 foot high. But why not go under them? Since the Euphrates River flowed below the city's walls, his engineers went upstream and they diverted the river into a catch basin. This enabled the troops to march into the city through the dried up riverbed. In fact, when the invaders reached the inner gates of the city, they found them mysteriously unlocked. It was a fulfillment of Isaiah 45 verse 1, where God calls the Persian king Cyrus by name and says, "...for him the gates will not be shut." The Medes and the Persians, they conquered the city of Babylon that very night without firing a shot, without even a battle. Daniel 5 verse 30 tells us, That very night Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. What a pointed illustration of these three principles we gleaned earlier. Truth for believers in minority status. Hey, despite the culture's attitude, our God is still in charge. And He positions you and me strategically in the society to speak a timely word when opportunities arise. I hope you'll be ready to speak that timely word. Don't be intimidated, don't be confused, don't be afraid. If Nebuchadnezzar or even Saddam Hussein were here today, they both testify that our God is the Most High.